Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to keep on top of the latest thinking and important issues affecting the fields of UX research, product management, and design. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of a diverse range of world-class leaders in those fields. My guest today is Dr. Noam Segal. Noam is a research manager at Meta, where he's building a modern, progressive, and impactful research team to support people working on Facebook's newsfeed. He also leads several key initiatives within Meta's qualitative center of excellence. Before Meta, Noam was the head of health research at Twitter. He has also been a director of user research at Wealthfront, a product research manager at Intercom, and a lead experience researcher at Airbnb. Outside of his day job, Noam invests a significant amount of energy in his mission to help UX professionals to elevate their craft and leadership. He's been doing this by mentoring on ADP List and UX Coffee Hours, sharing his knowledge on the Learners platform, and also on Maven, where he hosts two courses, The Missing Foundations of UX Research and The Research Storyteller. Noam is also active on his YouTube channel, UX Quests, where he hosts a series of conversations with UX research leaders about, well, UX research. To further his mission, Noam has also recently launched the UX Quest shop where you can find some hilarious UXR-related t-shirts and they are definitely worth checking out. My favourite is one that features a sloth that I can relate to. And now, it's my pleasure to have Noam here with me for this conversation on Brave UX. Noam, shalom and a very warm welcome to the show. Shalom, shalom. Thank you for the very kind introduction. I'm really happy to be here with you today. And I'm very happy to have you here, uh, expressly under the circumstances, which we won't go into, uh, but it's uh, it's great that you can make it, Noam. And I really wanted to start with something that hopefully is, is fairly straightforward, and that's that you sound English, like you're from England, but you grew up in Israel, and it's actually your parents that I learnt who are English or who grew up in England. So is it accurate to say that you picked up your English-sounding accent through osmosis? Yeah, it's a fascinating thing about language learning. Uh, you hear your parents speak. Uh, my parents spoke English at home. And you pick up not just on the language, but also the way it sounds. And I, I somewhat surprisingly i would say um sound even more british than my than my parents ever did and if you want to even go deeper into this topic my parents are originally from manchester and if you know anything about british accents then you'd know that my accent is not mancunian so the whole thing is very odd but yes i spoke english before hebrew i spoke english at home i think and dream and work in english and uh, I feel fortunate to have this accent because for some reason, especially in the United States, it adds a few 
bonus points in terms of how trustworthy you're perceived to be and how intelligent you're perceived to be. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. <laughs> yes, it, it definitely works in your favour. But I take it, given that it's not a Mancunian accent, that you won't be doing any impersonations of Noel and Liam Gallagher for me today. No, no, I, I'm really not equipped to do that at all. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, is there such a, a thing as an Israeli accent? I know Israel, by way of uh, a people, the Jewish people are, are very ancient people, but Israel as a country is a very new thing. Is there is there such a thing as an accent, an Israeli accent, or is it such a melting pot that that hasn't really emerged yet? I mean... Israelis do have a distinct accent when they speak in English, mm. uh, which is noticeable. But Israel is such a small country that it certainly doesn't have the diversity of accents that a country like the United States or the United Kingdom, maybe even Australia, I don't really know, and New Zealand uh, have. You know, in the United Kingdom, you have at least four to five very different accents depending on where you grew up in the country. And it's the same thing in the, in the United States. Uh, in Israel, we don't really have that. It's just such a tiny country. I actually, I looked into Israel's population. I, was, I don't know why. It was one of the things that I didn't prep for today. And I noticed in 1960, the population was a little over 2 million. So it was tiny, tiny country. It was about the same size as New Zealand at the time. And that grew steadily to 4 million until 1990. And then the graph, it started to hockey stick. And it's now around 9.5 million. And it's still climbing at what looks like quite a steady trajectory. When did your parents move from England to Israel and what was it that brought them there? They moved in the early 1980s, uh, maybe a couple of years before I was born. And it was a combination of Zionism and the sort of experiences they went through growing up in England, uh, even back then. And sadly, it's not any better today. There was a lot of anti-Semitism and hatred towards Jews and other minority populations. Uh, so that was definitely a, a catalyst for, for moving. And then my mother is a twin. She has an non-identical twin sister who moved uh, a year or, or maybe a couple of years before they did. And that gave my, my mother and my parents the, the confidence to make the move because they knew that they had family in Israel. And uh, my parents have never looked back. They're, they've now lived in Israel for much longer than they ever lived in the UK. And they're very happy with it, even though living in the Middle East and living in Israel, it's uh, it's complicated. It's a very, very complicated region with many problems. I want to get into not necessarily the geopolitical problems that you're touching on there, but I do want to get on into a topic that's personal to you, which is your work in the security forces and the military. But just before we do that, I was curious... You, you mentioned that your parents are very happy where they are in Israel now, and you also touched on the anti-Semitism that they faced growing up in England. And that's something that I think there is a incorrect belief in the West that it was certain other nations that were proponents of anti-Semitism. Do your parents, do you get the sense when you talk to them or when, or if they even talk about life in the UK, whether there is some sadness at having to uproot their lives and move to Israel, albeit they're very happy there? Is there some some sort of sadness or regret that the world is still not in a place where 
one can live wherever they like without facing that kind of persecution and discrimination? That's a tough question. I mean, I think it's incredibly unfortunate. And I do know that it's saddening to all of us when we see the violence and the hatred uh, in both the public conversation and in terrible, tragic acts of violence that are happening all around the world, not just to Jews, but many other minority populations. And I think more broadly, as an immigrant myself to the US, I know that the life of an immigrant is always riddled with sadness and confusion around our identities, uh, around what matters to us in life, around what we're missing out on, and around the, the distance from family, which is very hard. And, you know, every single day you have to evaluate your life all over again and and decide what your priorities are and and whether everything you're missing out on is is worth it and it's it's a very hard reality to be honest the life of an immigrant a jewish friend of mine shera who used to live here in auckland recently moved back to israel and what i've been seeing from shera is the community the tech community in israel and this is perhaps one of the world's best kept secrets is very vibrant and it's growing does Israel call to you? Do you feel any sense when you reflect on where you're at currently, any sense that sometime in the future that you might return there? I've learned to never say never in life, so it's possible. But there's a lot of hidden complexity in that question. For example, because I am a researcher, both at heart and in practice, and the field of UX research is a lot less mature in Israel. We could have a whole discussion just about why that is, but the fact is it's a lot less mature, so way fewer opportunities for people like myself, and that's a big issue. And also just given some of my values, principles, beliefs, living in Israel in its current state is, is not something that's very appealing to me. But again, I never say never. And there are many amazing things about the country I was born and raised in. And I often miss certain things about it, no doubt. You've described yourself in the past as, and I'll quote you now, someone who is extremely intro extroverted, not introverted, extroverted, the opposite. And you've said, and I'll quote you, quote you again now, you said you've always been very, very curious. You've even admitted in something that I was listening to that you read dictionaries for fun, which I thought was a hilarious and quite frank admission. It's, I understand that your curiosity that you refer to there, this intense want to know things, you actually attribute to your mother. It was a gift that you believe that she gave you. How did she give you that gift? Yeah, it's, it's through reading, that's the bottom line. My mother is an avid reader. She's always reading probably at least two books at a time. She's been part of book clubs her entire adult life and absolutely loves it. And I really do believe that the greatest gift she ever gave me, and she gave me many gifts, was the gift of curiosity and the gift of having a passion for learning this relentless feeling that you can't leave something alone until you understand it better. 
and this immense pleasure when you get to take in information in any format. I mean, these days there are way more formats than there used to be. We're in this current, this current format, podcasts and videos. Back in the day, it was more either books or, or nothing. But I just have this, this will, this passion, this thing that almost haunts me to, to have to learn about things quickly and deeply, or they will, they will just continue to spin the wheels in my mind. I, I won't be able to fall asleep. And I'm so grateful for that because I really do think that even more so in today's world, nothing is more important than a strong will to learn, to evolve, to stay curious, to keep up with everything that's that's happening around us. Perhaps most recently, the, the AI revolution is a good example and leveraging AI tools in the context of research, the context of UX. It's, it's just incredible how quickly things are evolving. And the only way to keep up with it is if you, if you build up your curious mind. And if you couple that with smart learning strategies, right? I mean, uh, I think my mother gave me the foundation, but I've since tried to sharpen it by building strategies and finding the right tools and ways of thinking to learn quickly, to learn effectively, and to maximize what I retain from all of that learning. So, And you've certainly taken that foundation that your mother gave you and really significantly built on that. You have a PhD from the University of Illinois, and I do want to come to your time there shortly. But before I do that, I want to wind the clock back to when you first went to university in Israel. And it's that I understood that you went to Israel's only, first and only private university called Reichman University, and you earned a bachelor in of psychology and a minor in media and communication studies. And you then, you went on to a career or start your, to start your career in the Israeli Air Force as an intelligence officer and a lead instructor. What was the nature of the work that you were doing there? So first of all, the, the order is flipped. Uh, in Israel, when you turn 18 and you finish high school, you go into the ah. military. Mm. And so I... Literally graduated from high school and three weeks later, I was enlisted in the military. I had three weeks in between graduating and starting my military service. I spent one and a half of those weeks in Italy with a couple of friends of mine. And then that was it. And as Israelis, we only go to college after our military service. The mandatory service for men is three years. I did five. So starting with the question about, you, about the military most of my military service was in a unit or one of the units that are in charge of Israel's missile defense. And basically what has happened in, in the world when it comes to uh, air forces all around the world is that missiles and rockets became a much larger threat than ever before. In the past, maybe other planes or helicopters were a threat, just like maybe other parts of the military thought more about tanks or I don't know what. But in recent years, missiles have become a major threat to Israel and other countries. And so our unit was in charge and is still in charge to this day of protecting Israel from medium to long range missiles. 
So would these be the kind of missiles that we're seeing Russia use against civilians in Ukraine? Uh, similar, definitely. I, I can't really get into too many details for obvious reasons about the sort of things we did. But broadly speaking, the particular systems I was operating and then helping to build in, in my first job outside of the military, these are systems designed to stop missiles that are medium to long range. So in the hundreds to the thousands of kilometers, unlike, for example, a system like the Iron Dome, which became rather famous in recent years, that system is used to stop short range rockets as opposed to longer range missiles, which can, in theory, uh, have nuclear heads. There's not a lot of room for error, I would imagine, in those systems. There isn't, and that's actually a, a critical point because it's why I was so fascinated by this area, and it's also why I left it and moved on to other things. Uh, I've shared many times that I believe failure is probably the key driver of learning. You have to fail to learn. You have to learn how to fail in order to, to learn. And when what you're doing is operating or building missile defense systems, there's no room for error. And that means there's no room for failure. And so it's not the sort of environment where you can have rich learning, in my opinion, because of that, that constant fear that maybe what you'll do won't work. It's, it's very, very different from the reality I'm in these days, working in the tech sector in the United States. Uh, really couldn't be more different. But I, I was fortunate that that military service is the reason why I was even given a chance to, to lead the user experience for some of these systems. And I'm incredibly grateful for those six years because I learned a ton about what it means to build these sort of user experiences, what it means to do design, to do research, to do content, because I was really doing all of those things to a certain extent, while also being the user. You know how we always say, you are not the user. Well, I was. I was the user and the builder at the same time. UX person by day and military operator by night. Every single month, I would you know, go back to my unit for a day or two to do reserve duty. So in that very particular case, which has never happened since, I was 100% the user and the UX person. Thinking about that dual role and thinking about the training that you've subsequently had in psychology and what you know about the biases that we hold as individuals, what, and then contrasting your experience with those systems, with the tech products that you've gone on to help to shape, what would you say the most marked difference, or perhaps it's more than one, is between the approach to user experience design of a can't-fail military system like that, a defense system, to, to the approach that you've been accustomed to taking across the tech companies you've worked for? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. I mean, first of all, the, the development cycle is completely different. When, when the thing that you're building is a missile defense system, you're not releasing a new version every week. 
uh, not even close. Uh, we, we would basically release new versions once every few months, if not once every year or, or two years. So the way we developed products was very, very, very different. In particular, because of that lack of any room for failure. Uh, so it was not an iterative process. I also think that one of the long-standing kind of trends in, in the work of user experience is that users want control. People want control over their experience. And with missile defense, it's, it's an interesting problem because it's a fascinating problem because often you might have just a few seconds to make a life or death decision. And the fact is, humans are not necessarily very well equipped to make those sort of decisions. So we were building systems that were giving operators, military operators, a certain level of control um, while trying to persuade people, essentially, that they should relinquish some of that control because the systems were making decisions more reliably and better than a human ever could. This is real Skynet kind of thinking I'm hearing. Uh, it, it is. But again, when, when you get a glimpse at the back end of these systems and all of the calculations happening, it's just not something that the human brain can do factually. Now, later on in my career, when I was working on very different things, like at Airbnb and, you know, travel. Well, when people are searching for travel, they can take as much time as they want, obviously. They can apply whatever filters they want. They can discover where they want to stay, however it suits them. And, and of course, there's no life or death decision here. You might end up having a horrible or brilliant experience based on your decisions. Uh, usually it's, it's brilliant and not horrible, but, you know, things happen sometimes. But it's a very different atmosphere and it's a very different decision-making process. So... That's a marked difference between those those two experiences I had. So that's probably worth noting. You spoke about how when you turned 18, it was only I think two or three weeks, you said, after yeah. that, that you started your military service, one of which you spent in Italy with your friends. And the minimum time to serve was three years, but you elected to stay for five. Why was that? I was doing very fulfilling work. To your point earlier, I had a, a dual role, essentially. I had an operational role and I had an instructional role. On the operational side, this was fascinating work and it was incredibly important. And I was, I was honored and privileged to be part of that unit and to be part of defending my country, uh, which I will always love and, and will always support even though there is, again, huge complexities in the Middle East and, and huge challenges there. And I do want to acknowledge that. On the other hand, I had an instructional role and teaching has always been a very near and dear to my heart, a, a very important part of my life. I have been a teacher or an instructor for my entire adult life and even before I was an adult. 
And so having those two opportunities was incredible. I was surrounded by amazing people in in the military, many of whom are still my friends to this day, and I'm proud to call them my friends. I learned so much from them. So it was an incredible experience, uh, but I think it was also a somewhat comfortable experience, which might seem odd because, you know, being in the military isn't necessarily the most comfortable thing, depending on what you do. But that type of service I did was comfortable. And I recently wrote about how being uncomfortable is really important. You know, from discomfort comes growth. And so I decided to leave because I wanted to to step out of my comfort zone and, and do other things. Before we move on to other things, I know it's been a while since you've lived in Israel, but you mentioned that you still have many friends there. And from what I assume, your parents and some family, of your family are still yep. there, right? How would you, for someone like me who hasn't been to Israel, although I did go to, as I mentioned, to a Hebrew school for quite some time, how would you characterize the Israeli mindset, the mindset of everyday Israelis as it relates to the defense of Israel and the military service that they have to enter as very new adults? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated relationship. For example, even though military service is mandatory in Israel, many individuals do not go into the military for several reasons. Uh, the primary one being religious beliefs. Israel is different than most countries in, in the sense that religion and politics are very mixed. We have religious political parties within the Israeli parliament and government. We have funding for religious, you know, governmental funding for religious organizations. And certain people within the religious community choose to not serve in the military and instead learn and educate themselves on the Bible and, and dedicate their lives to their religion and to God. Uh, and therefore, they don't serve in the military. This has created a chasm between different parts of the Israeli population, because we all understand that without a strong military, uh, Israel would not be able to exist. The countries around Israel don't love us, to say the least. To a certain extent, I can't blame them. But again, as an Israeli, I, I understand and deeply believe in the importance of Israel's being and existence as a country. So it's very complicated, but I, I think there's no doubt that the Middle East is a bonkers region in the world. And I genuinely hope that in the future we see more peace, less hatred, more respect for each other as people. Believe me, it is absolutely my wish that none of us would need any sort of military and that we could all just get along and see each other as people. And it's been one of my greatest pleasures working in the United States and being a student in the United States that I have so many friends, peers, colleagues from Iran, from Iraq, from Lebanon, uh, from Saudi Arabia, from other places. And because we're here, we can just be people and we can just love each other and respect each other and work together rather than being in this constant, tragic battle, 
it saddens me terribly that that's the situation. I hope it gets better. Me too. Certainly been a situation that's perpetuated for several thousand years at this point. Just shifting our conversation from, I suppose, the the moral realm into the ethical one. Ethics is a very hot topic in design. And I just wanted to read out something that you said a couple of years ago, which was, I think that we have also come to realize in the past few years, way too late if you ask me, that we have great responsibilities in tech and that sometimes the experiences we create can be detrimental, if not dangerous, to our democracy, to equity, to our society, to so, so many things. Now, you recently joined Meta as a research manager, as I mentioned in your introduction, and you're focusing in on Facebook's newsfeed. And that's clearly been an area of tech and of Facebook specifically that has been in the media of late in recent times for perhaps some not so positive outcomes from that technology, which Meta, I believe, has acknowledged and is working on. I was curious about your statement from a couple of years ago and contrasting that with the position that you're in now. Do you see those two things, that statement and the work you're doing now, as being in conflict with one another? I don't. I'll say this. I I fully stand behind that statement. I still believe in it. I think it was relevant is relevant and will continue to be relevant for years to come. But let me tell you something. I joined Meta, even though I had a choice to join other companies that I'll leave unnamed. I don't think it's important for this point. One of the reasons I chose to join Meta was that I felt Meta as a company is trying to navigate uncharted waters where we're trying to build new realities, you know, uh, this, this concept of a metaverse. It's incredibly ambitious, and these are uncharted waters. Now, when you are treading uncharted paths, you are bound to encounter these issues. Absolutely. But I wanted to be a very small part of the solution, rather than keep myself out of the arena. You know, I wanted to step into the arena. I think it's an important arena. At Twitter, not Meta, I was working on, it's, it was called health, as you mentioned in your introduction, but at Meta, we call this integrity, and sometimes it's also known as trust and safety. At Twitter, I was working very directly together with an, an incredible team, who, which were all disbanded, after Elon Musk took over Twitter, we were working on these exact issues, on civic integrity, on privacy, on trust and safety, on disinformation and misinformation, all of these all of these topics. Um, at Meta, that's not what I'm doing directly. Um, but obviously, we all have a part to play in trying to maintain the integrity of our democracy and democratic processes and trying to ensure that the public conversation is healthy and isn't detrimental and and does help elevate our ethics and our morals. And I can truly, truly say with all honesty that I feel like 
everyone at Meta. I'm surrounded by just incredibly talented people. We are trying to do that, but we're navigating uncharted waters and we make mistakes, you know, and I'm here to speak for myself, of course, not for the company. I'm not a representative of Meta in this conversation as far as I'm concerned. I do want to clarify that, but I really do feel like just philosophically from, from a, a my personal values, it's always better to step into the arena, to be part of the solution, not the problem. And, and so I understand the criticisms. I understand the concerns. I stand behind the opinion I shared back then. And I'm proud to be part of, again, a very small part of the solutions to, to these things. I think we're getting better at it. I think it's going to take I mean, I was going to say, I think it's going to take time, but I think it's, it's a never ending process because we're always learning. And that's why this profession and this role at Meta is so fascinating to me because I just love to learn and we're learning a lot. It sounds like you're saying that if those of us in UX and perhaps in research and design specifically hold on too tightly to our ethical objections that we exclude ourselves from participating in the future of these companies that have maybe made some missteps along the way, that we're actually at risk of them perpetuating or them making more missteps if we're not there to help play an important role in shining a light on some of those decisions that need to be made. Yeah, I mean, I think we all need, each of us individually, need to decide on our you know, red lines, the lines that we won't cross in terms of our career, that's a personal decision. And we each have our own framework for that. I have my own framework as well. But yes, at the same time, as long as you're not crossing those, those red lines, I do genuinely believe that we have a very important role to play in correcting some of these things, in being part of the solution, in creating more ethical products, uh, we are we are needed as UX researchers, as UX professionals more broadly. And I will always choose to step into the arena and be part of that, as long as those very foundational principles and, and models aren't crossed, you know? And I urge people to to consider that as well. Show me a company that hasn't made missteps. Show me a, a person who hasn't made mistakes. Uh, I think I mentioned this earlier. Failure is a key to learning. And I make a point of sharing my failures, sharing my mistakes, so that other people can learn. And so that I can learn better from them myself by externalizing them and making them more, more salient. One of the mistakes and failures that perhaps some designers and UX researchers are wishing that they hadn't made or wondering if it was indeed a mistake has been the democratization of design and of research. And about this, when you were at Wealthfront, you said, I'll quote you again now, 
Research at Wealthfront is incredibly democratised, and I very much support that approach. By democratised, I mean that we're all running research, trying to better understand our clients and potential clients, everyone from PMs to designers, researchers, engineers, data scientists, marketing. We're all trying to understand our clients. We're all taking part in that process. And the reason why I suggested that maybe some people who are researchers and designers are wondering whether or not this has been a mistake is because of the ongoing tech layoffs that have been happening, which seem to have been disproportionately affecting researchers and designers. Now, I was curious about this because this is a show where we have topics about the things that are important to these fields, and this is definitely one of them. It's also a show where I like to give people the opportunity to clarify any positions that they may have held because they may have indeed changed, because we as people change. So my question is, do you still believe in the benefits of democratizing research or in democratizing research itself? Yeah. So there's a lot of nuance here, as as always, I suppose. One issue I think which is plaguing us here is is the use of the word democratization. I'm not sure the term makes sense anymore. And I think we might want to consider reframing that to a certain extent. Do I believe that the involvement of other areas outside of research is helpful to ensure that research is impactful? Yes, I still believe that. I think that when everyone around us is involved in some way, not in all projects necessarily, obviously there's a lot of nuance here, right, in terms of how people are involved and how much people are involved, how deeply in which type of projects. Uh, and we could talk about just that topic for an entire day, I'm sure. But is that involvement helpful typically? Yes, I believe it is. And I do believe that when teams have a deep respect for each other's crafts and they involve themselves with other people's crafts and take the time to learn about cross-functional partners' worlds and not just their own worlds, and they give feedback and they help elevate each other, those are all positive things. I can also say that there is something incredibly unfair happening here, I would suggest. I'm talking about things like the definition, at least in the US, of technical roles versus huge, quote-unquote, non-technical roles, where basically any role that isn't an engineering role is considered a non-technical role. That is absolute nonsense. Um, I think that research, design, content design are all incredibly technical roles. And you can study any of them for many, many years and still not even touch the tip of the iceberg of, of knowledge about them. And so in many cases, in many types of projects, there's absolutely a necessity for a professional, for a researcher, a designer, a content designer to lead the project, to take the lead on the project. But does that mean not involving people in any stage of the project, in any type of role? I don't think so. So maybe it's time to graduate beyond a discussion of democratizing or not democratizing and do at least 
two things. Number one, maybe change the term. Uh, are we really talking about democratization here? I think people outside of UX find that confusing. So number one, let's maybe change the term. And we could have a discussion about the term, or we could skip that and leave that to someone else. Um, I do love languages, and I do love dictionaries. So you know, if you want to go there, we can go there. The second thing to do once we decide on a better term is to talk about those nuances, to talk about the depth of involvement and the nature of involvement and what types of projects are more relevant for deep involvement from cross-functional partners and which projects aren't. But going back to the beginning, yes, I do believe that I'm going to choose the term involvement from cross-functional partners can be incredibly beneficial to maximizing the impact and the effect that research has on product development and on design. There are many, many places we could go based on what you've just said, Noam. I am interested in exploring the what's come to be the meaning of the word democratization. And maybe it is actually just the literal meaning of it, but what it has meant for UX researchers and designers has been the tools of production or the, the tools to do the work. And I suppose I'm wrapping the ability to do the work up in that has been decentralized from our roles as specialists. And we've effectively said to, this is my own personal opinion, we've effectively said to other specialist roles that you can do this work. And they have been doing that work. And we've said, generally speaking, that that will allow us to focus on more impactful research, you know, research that has a longer time horizon or that requires more specialist skills. I suspect this may have been driven by more and more academics entering the field of UX research and not being that thrilled with the prospect of doing evaluative research, things that are more close to the day-to-day -day of the product. But I, I observe that that may have not served the field particularly well. And I think that's evidence in, in these layoffs affecting the field more heavily than they are, for example, engineers. Because my assumption is where's being seen more and more to be surplus to requirements. So I'm interested in your view on that. And I'm also interested on, in your view on the alternate term you've proposed, which is involvement. And for me, that sounds like you're talking about integrating perspectives, uh, ladders of inference, you know, ways that we can actually help the teams that are making the products to make better decisions without actually having to drive the research themselves. Yeah. So first of all, we are recording this in a distressing time in, in the tech industry, right? And for anyone watching this a few months or maybe even years later, I mean, what we're seeing is record numbers of tech workers being laid off. And to your point, entire UX research teams obliterated and... I, I just, I feel the need to say that, first of all, I am very sad about this. I'm distressed about this. I have seen immensely talented individuals who I know have had incredible impact in the companies they worked at being let go in an email and just finding out one day that they don't have any access to the internal systems. It's a very, very difficult experience. And I feel for everyone going through this. And it's incredibly upsetting. We are also 
in a time when there's this revolution, it feels like, in artificial intelligence and various AI tools. And the reason that's also relevant to this conversation is that this is a moment of reckoning for us, where we have both maybe people in other areas and or automation AI tools that are going to impact the way we work. And we have to figure out what we're going to do here and how we're going to approach our work from here on. And are we going to take the time to learn about our cross-functional partners so we can better collaborate with them? Are we going to take the time to learn about these AI tools and how we can leverage them? And are we going to rethink what our role is or not? I think we should take this moment of reckoning as a time of reflection. Reflection, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person, I'm not a practicing Jew, but I am Jewish. Reflection is a, is a very big part of Judaism. The most holy thing we do as Jews is the Sabbath, where for one day a week, for 24 hours, we disconnect from all of this crap, the screens, the phones, all of that stuff, and we reflect and we spend time with our family. And once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, we reflect on our sins and how we could be better as individuals. And I've certainly taken that from my religion, even though I'm not a, a practicing Jew or a religious person, to say the least. I think we should be, we, we need to take this moment to reflect. I don't have answers. I'm not sure what we should do here. The only thing I am sure of, and I call upon people to do, if you're listening to this close to when we record this is let's reflect together. Let's have discussions about what our role is in the world, how we want to collaborate with the people around us, and how we want to leverage AI tools and other things to be better. If we don't do this, then we're just leaving our fates in the hands of others, and that's not going to work out for us. It sounds like you feel our Day of Atonement has come and coming back to my original question about whether or not you still believed in the democratization of research, is it fair to say that you no longer believe in it and the way that it's been enacted and it's time for us to take that term and that approach off the table? I'm not sure I would frame it that way. I would say, again, what I believe is that we, we need to evolve this is a pivotal moment for UX researchers and even more broadly, UX professionals. We need to evolve our profession. We need to take the time to, to consider it. We need to think about the language we're using here and whether democratization is even a good fit. I think language matters. I certainly know that uh, my content design peers and friends would agree that language matters a whole lot. But of course, we need to go a lot deeper than just the term and really figure out our relationships and, and how we work. I think that one of the ways you could think about this is that clearly the powers that be, whoever they are, have not seen enough impact from us. They're looking for something more. We need to figure out what that thing is quickly and understand how we can make our work more impactful. If we don't, then we will be in trouble as a, as a profession. So we have to be realistic about 
how we're thinking about things and what we're doing here. And, and again, this also ties to what we talked about before. We can either avoid this, avoid this moment, avoid this confrontation, avoid this reflection, or we can jump into the arena and have these conversations. And I would really much prefer to be in that latter group than the former one. So let's jump in. Uh, not just in this conversation, obviously, but in, in many, many more conversations that need to happen all around the world. And let's figure this thing out. Let's better ourselves. Noam, you spoke earlier about how engineering was a technical skill and everything else was deemed to be non-technical. And Not by me, to be clear, but by yes, other not, people. Not yes. by you, not by you. And when you think about technical skills, you think about them in terms of hard skills. And I know that there's something that gets you a little riled up, which is the opposite <laughs> of a hard skill, which is a soft skill. And you've said, and I'll quote you again now, you've said that soft skills are foundational skills and they are skills that so many people are missing. And this, is, this ties back into what you're touching on just a little earlier around our failure to appropriately demonstrate our impact for the people who are making the decisions to truly understand what it is that we're delivering for the organisations we work for. Now, of course, that's, that's very general, and I'm not casting any dispersions on any particular researcher or research group or research team that's been adversely affected here. But in general, I, I hear what you're saying there, and I think that's been reflected in the layoffs. Now, you've pointed out in particular one of those foundational skills that is very important in communicating value and impact is storytelling. And it's missing from most of our educations and probably from most of our professional experiences. So how is a good research story or a good story whenever you need to influence someone's decision-making in an enterprise context, how is that best to be told? Yeah, you have some big questions today. I'll say this. To your point, most of us, unless we study English literature or film or journalism, we don't learn much about storytelling. But stories are, are foundational to our lives. Stories are the reason we're not dead because we told each other stories about, you know, there's a lion over there, don't go, don't go there. Stories give us great pleasure. Stories activate parts in our brain that nothing else activates. And whether it's a 500-page book or a one-minute TikTok that's well-crafted, stories compel us. And the type of stories we tell has definitely changed in recent years. And, you know, stories these days tend to be shorter, more compressed more dynamic than ever before, but our brains don't evolve as fast as technology. And so our brains still crave story. Now, what makes a good research story? I think of this in, in three different layers of understanding. And these are the layers I teach when I, when I teach about storytelling. The first layer is the layer of universal storytelling. There are universal principles and frameworks that, again, are very well known to you if you've studied film, but not well known to you if you've studied mathematics or even human-computer interaction or design. And these frameworks, frameworks like the hero's journey, 
which Star Wars is based on and Lord of the Rings is based on and so many other incredible stories are based on. It's those sorts of frameworks that get our brains excited, that get our wheels churning. They are familiar structures that humans understand and internalize. And our research stories have to have those foundations in order to be truly internalized. And in an attempt to address the issues of short attention spans and no time to do anything and all of that stuff, we have resorted to things like the TLDR, you know, too long, don't read, um, didn't read. And the TLDR and many other modern frameworks for corporate executive storytelling, they don't work. They don't fit in with the way our brain operates. We'd like to think they work and we use them all the time. Uh, I don't, but others, others maybe do, I'm sure. They don't work very well. There are better alternatives. But anyway, that's the first layer. The second layer is the layer of kind of data-driven, insight-driven storytelling, right? There are ways to break down insights into chunks and pieces that people can understand. And we can just think about one subtopic here, which is data visualization, how you present data to people. It can make such a difference to the impact you have when people have an intuitive, immediate understanding of what you're presenting to them. One of my kind of idols in this field is uh, the late and great Hans Rosling. I, I wrote about him just yesterday in, in a LinkedIn post I, I wrote. He was a medical doctor who turned into a data visualization expert. And he has demonstrated through many TED Talks and presentations about how the way you frame stories in visuals can make such a difference to how they're perceived. So that's the second layer. And then the third layer, which is something we are certainly not trained to do if we've studied, I don't know, sociology or, 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 or anthropology or even many types of psychology and many other fields that UX researchers come from is persuasion. Persuasion. Salespeople understand persuasion. But we are not, in UX, I would say broadly, we are not great salespeople. And we have not dedicated enough time to understand what makes a message persuasive. What, how do you get past that tipping point where people will accept your, your message? And there are tons of incredible frameworks that you can use for persuasion. I don't imagine us getting into them today, but we just have to recognize that even if we lay the foundations for our story using universal principles, and even if we top that with amazing insight-driven storytelling, if we don't add that component of persuasion and present our evidence and our opinions, our recommendations in the right way, they probably won't be acted upon. And so we need all of those three layers to, to succeed. 
By the way, I'm obsessed with the number three. That's something I share about myself. And the number three is a very important number in storytelling. Uh, obviously, the, the three-act story, you know, story, or all of the children's stories that our parents used to tell us where there are three characters. It's an important number because it's the first number where you can start seeing patterns. And it's those patterns, those patterns of behavior, those patterns of thinking that we want to showcase to our stakeholders in order to be successful. So that's one part of my thinking on the topic. Speaking of that third layer of uh, persuasion, and you mentioned the term sales, which is a term that many people struggle with. It's almost as difficult for people as the term money <laughs> sort of conjures up uh, very mixed feelings across the Absolutely. population. But it's a very important aspect, as you've quite rightly pointed out, of our ability to have influence. There was a couple of episodes just recently published on a psychology podcast called Hidden Brain, where um, Shankar Vedanta, who's the host there, interviewed uh, Bob Caldini, who wrote, I think it was pretty much the seminal book in the early 80s, yep. On persuasion, and they've had he's had Bob on, and they've basically unpacked um, each of Bob's findings and a subsequent finding that he had in his research after he'd written the book. I definitely recommend checking that out. It's very practical um, in the way that it's discussed and could be applied. Now, um, you mentioned that you're obsessed with three, the number three. So I want to give you three letters now, which I think you'll connect with. The first is N. The second is P, and the third is S. And you've once said you've once said about NPS, NPS is the most terrible thing ever invented in history. Now those are some pretty strong words, and I've asked you to re-examine a couple of your previous positions already today. I'm going to ask you to do it a third time. Do you still stand by those words? Well, I'll begin by saying I, I use strong language. I want to acknowledge that. And obviously, NPS is not literally the worst thing that's happened in human history. <laughs> let's, let's be clear about that. It is one of the worst things that have happened in, in research, I would suggest, and in, in corporate America and other regions of the world. It's certainly not one of the worst things that have happened in history. Uh, so I do want to clarify that. I think that would be incredibly disrespectful for to so many people who have had worse things happen to them you can in life. you can blame that on my deadpan delivery if you're listening to this on the audio you probably missed the slight smile i had on the video when i was saying that yeah 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 so 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 just to be perfectly clear look you know this ties to something we talked about earlier which is our responsibility as UX professionals in this idea of democratizing research. Part of the pushback against democratizing research is that we have a set of specialized skills. Just like Liam Neeson says in, in Taken, if you know that, that classic scene, I love Liam Neeson. But anyway, I, I digress. We have a set of specialized skills. There are standards for what is rigorous research. Very clear standards. And you can get an entire PhD, if you choose to, in survey science, where you will learn about all of those standards as it pertains to surveys. NPS basically disregards so many of those standards, it's just ridiculous, right? A classic one, which we talk about all the time in research, is that 
people are just not great at predicting what they will do in the future. And so it's much more fruitful to ask people about problems they have encountered in their lives, barriers they've encountered, issues they've had, things that have happened in their past, rather than asking them to prophesize and guess what they may do in the future. But that's one of just so many issues, both from a survey science perspective, a statistical perspective. Recently, Fred Reichelt, who came up with NPS, published a very well-received Harvard Business Review Journal uh, article. I think it was called NPS 3.0. And in that article, he essentially blamed people well, not like me because I don't use NPS, but people who use NPS for misusing it. And from there, he went on to suggest another metric he came up with, which is really just an amalgamation of two or three existing metrics that we use all, all the time in order to more accurately assess how likely people are to engage with a product and be satisfied with it and stick with it. I think that rather than blaming, you know, putting the blame on people using NPS for misusing it, we should, again, deeply reflect on how NPS lines up with all of these principles we know to be true about what makes up a good survey and a good survey question. And if we come to the shared understanding, which I hope we do, that NPS violates countless survey science principles then why use it? Why use it? You know, garbage in, garbage out. If your input is garbage, your output will still be garbage. That's true for any system, certainly AI systems and, and other systems. I just don't understand why we use this so much, which is why I pay every year for uh, not just one domain, but two domains. Fun fact, if you go to npsistheworst.com, that's one of the websites I own, and it talks about why NPS is the worst. But if you go to npsisthebest.com, you will also get to NPS is the worst because I'm so dedicated to eradicating NPS that if anyone believes it's the best thing that's ever happened, I want them to arrive at, at my website. What can I say? It's, it's disappointing to me that we don't care enough about the rigor of our practices to stop using these type of of metrics there's something interesting in that to explore though isn't there why has this single question survey irrespective of its validity why ha has it become so influential and i feel like there's something in there that as researchers if we could understand why that is, it might help us to unlock some of the challenges we've been having with having impact back into our businesses. Because there's something in there potentially around the psychology of business decision making. And I suspect it has to do with business favoring speed over rigor. Something There's something in there and it may give us some clues that if we could figure it out, we might be able to couch better metrics or better ways of measuring it in a language that is going to connect better with the business and is going to see us having uh, more impact rather than us, you know, rattling our sabers around our 
expertise and the specific training we've had, which seems to fall rightly or wrongly on deaf ears more often than not. It's a great idea. I'm not sure how to execute it. Mm. Uh, I I don't know that we have a clear path to attributing the success of NPS to to anything. I, I don't know how to do that. You bring up a marvelous point. I mean, I'm, I I will be reflecting on this after our conversation and and pondering on it. That's for sure. But I don't know, just off the top of my head, how we would do that. I definitely agree with the point I think you're making, which is if we could unpack, reverse engineer, get into the black box of what made NPS as successful as it is and as ubiquitous almost as it sadly is, maybe we can leverage those same tactics in order to make good metrics and measurements as popular or even more popular, hopefully. But I don't know how to do that right now i don't have any any brilliant ideas for you i think that nps has been compelling because people do feel like it contributes to the growth of products when they themselves recommend those products to to other people and recommendations do do matter right i i do agree with that to a certain extent and and I also think the the way NPS is calculated is, is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, and doesn't make any sense. But it also seems sophisticated to the the naked, somewhat untrained eye, right? It's like, oh, how cool! This is just one question. So on the one hand, it's simple; it's not hard to answer. But on the other hand, there are such sophisticated calculations happening here on the back end. That must say something, you know, this must be a a valid metric. So if I had to guess, it's this interesting balance between the supposed simplicity and complexity of this question, which people find compelling. But I don't know that to be a fact. And I think that's just one maybe small part of what made NPS so popular. Skirting around this topic of methodology, or at least the application of methods and measurements and in this case, a method or a measurement in NPS's case that doesn't originate from UX research or human factors. Another one of those methods in this case, or maybe it's more of a framework, is jobs to be done. And I had a good conversation with Jim Callback, I think it was at the end of 2022, and we unpacked some of his work in this area. Now, this is a framework, jobs to be done, that you've described as phenomenal and I understand that you had experience with this framework when you were working as a researcher at Intercom. I also had a, a friend, uh, Robbie Allen, who was a group product manager there, yep. and he's also raved about jobs to be done um, on the podcast previously. Yet it seems that this framework hasn't had widespread acceptance or adoption by UX research or UX researchers, and that's something that Jim and I were both in agreement on. I was curious about your take on this, though. Is that something that you've also observed? Do you feel that the framework has a lot of potential, yet we haven't really come to realise that? Or is there something else going on here in UX research as to why it hasn't been more widely adopted? I mean, one interesting point is that both NPS and Jobs to be Done really came from the marketing world, not the the research or the UX research world per se. 
and they were adopted into different contexts from the ones they started at, right? Jobs to be done was was a mattress thing or a, a milkshake thing or, you know, whatever. It, it wasn't a software thing. And I was truly fortunate to get to work at Intercom, which to this day I think is considered the company that took jobs to be done and really made it a lot more mainstream in the tech world. And I got to work with Robbie, by the way. Um, so it's, it's oh, cool did that you? You, you know him. Small world. Um, yeah, I mean, he's from your part of the world, right? Mm. So that's, I imagine, how you know him. We all know each other in New Zealand. There's only 5 million I, of us. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> so... So maybe part of the issue is that it's that, you know, jobs to be done was, did not organically grow within the UX research or even the research communities. It wasn't used in the context of software companies until really maybe a decade or maybe two decades ago at at most, as, as far as I know, at least not widely adopted, certainly. And, and another thing to note perhaps is that We in UX research like to do something which is a little bit unfortunate, and we do this in academia as well and other fields, which is taking a framework, which is absolutely okay, tweaking a couple of of parameters within that framework and calling it something else. So I have seen a lot of frameworks which very much look alike jobs to be done and maybe differ on one or two particular points, but, but nothing beyond that. And so I think if you were to take all of those frameworks, um, framing things as user stories rather than jobs to be done, but then those stories actually include jobs and then, then depending on the way you measure the adoption of jobs to be done, maybe it's a lot higher, even though it's not called jobs to be done per se. I do think there's great strength in that framework. I do think that each and every one of us is walking around this world with a bunch of things that bother us and we are hiring, quote unquote, tools to help us solve those issues. And I think Jobs to Be Done is here to stay. And in fact, I just read this week a phenomenal demonstration of, and sorry for always jumping into this, but I'm very excited about this technology. I saw this demonstration of ChatGPT taking a number of qualitative interviews and then synthesizing those interviews into the jobs to be done framework. It was absolutely phenomenal to see. And I really think there's there's something there that, that's going to be in much more widespread use in, in coming years. There's definitely huge and rich territory to explore with ChatGPT. I've been fascinated just personally with some of the lines of inquiry I've plugged into it and just how it can come back with things that are surprising, relevant, how you can ask it to refine certain things in particular tones or to go deeper on particular topics. Uh, it's truly phenomenal. And I, 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 I hear you. I feel that as a discipline we would be at risk of eliminating our usefulness if we don't seriously consider how we can use this technology to augment the expertise that we already have and take some of the heavy work away from us so that we can apply our minds to some challenges that ChatGPT can't quite yet keep up with 100%. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I listened to your conversation with um, Steve Portugal. And Steve's been a guest on the show previously and someone who I greatly respect. And you and Steve were having a really interesting conversation around methodology and specifically about the lack of evolution or innovation that we've seen in research methodology and UX research methodology specifically. Now, you've noted that you don't think that there's anyone that you can think of that's really been claiming this mantle, this title of advancing the methodology. And I know we've just been talking about jobs to be done and MPS, things that have originated from marketing, as you point out, and that we haven't really grasped with two hands. Why is there potentially some stagnation in the field when it relate, as it relates to methodology? Is this a problem? Is it an opportunity? How do you see this? It's a great question. The history of UX research is is debatable in the sense of, for example, when we began to do UX research. And in my opinion, we are not a new field because the way I see things, UX research really started with uh, human factors research or, or HCI research back in the early to mid 20th century when we were when we were researching things like the modern phone or the airplane. And so in that sense, we are a fairly mature field, but I do acknowledge that UX research as a profession uh, has gone perhaps through a few evolutions since then, and that you could make the argument that we aren't yet a super mature field. Now, one of the indicators of a mature field is that we spend a little less time focusing just on the research we're doing and more time focusing on how we do research in the first place. And, and I know that I, I'm a psychologist by training. My PhD is in psychology. I know that I saw this in psychology where a small group of kind of the younger generation researchers began to look into new methodologies and they're kind of, they've taken on the role of meta researchers, not meta the company, but, but meta in the sense of, you know, looking at the mechanics of research and, and how we can evolve our practice. Now, that's all well and good, but I think to your point, that brings up the question of whether we need to do that or not. And I feel like so much of our conversation ties to other parts of our conversation. For example, it's possible that some of what these, these layoffs are indicating is that there isn't an appetite for even more complexity and advanced methodology in UX research. Maybe there just isn't. Again, let's be, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's say the difficult things. It's possible that there is no interest in these type of advanced methodologies, maybe replacing NPS with some, you know, much more rigorous and sophisticated metric for satisfaction. Maybe that's not a thing. And if that's the case, we, we may have to accept that and figure out what to do with that harsh reality. Maybe we could be a lot more impactful and companies would be a lot more bullish about UX research if we did evolve our methodologies faster, right? Now, by evolve, I don't mean, for example, you know, diary studies. Diary studies have been around for a very long time. 
uh, we used to carry them out using actual physical notebooks or, or, or paper, which we would mail physically to people's homes. And yes, we've evolved that to now use platforms like uh, Dscout and, and other platforms to carry out diary research. But the, but the fundamentals of what diary research is haven't really changed that much. So I'm not talking about that type of of evolution, but you do have to wonder whether there are novel, new practices that we could be adopting. For example, in the context of, sorry to again get at this, but AI, chat GPT, whatnot, one of the greatest challenges I would suggest in qualitative research is synthesizing that research right? Because when you have thick data, not big data, but thick data, as we call it sometimes, it can be incredibly challenging to take all of that rich information and synthesize it well. And honestly, it can be hard for big data too. Uh, um, you know, both matter. It's possible that using novel machine learning, AI-based tools, we, we could improve the way we synthesize our understanding of the world and of people and reach better conclusions. That's a possibility. It's possible that we can use newer statistical methods and tools to come up with better measurements of things like satisfaction. A lot of things are possible, but I I, I haven't seen that much, if any, major innovation in these spaces because... I don't think we're taking the time to do it, to be honest. I, I think definitely if you're uh, if you're working in UX research, design, content, then you're probably, especially at the more senior levels, part of trying to improve processes and tools within your company. But we're just repeating what we've done in previous companies or what other people around us have done. I don't think that's about innovating on those methods. So we'll see what happens. Again, I think we need to reflect on our profession and and whether we should be pursuing this direction or whether we don't see that much utility in it. I don't know the answer. This idea that you haven't seen innovation in the field of our methodologies, you know, we're not taking the time to do so and not being quite sure why that is. One thing that came to mind as a result of having these conversations, you know, over a hundred of them over the last couple of years, has been the shift of UX and design as a field from being something that largely happened in agencies, smaller, upstart, naturally innovative through necessity type organizations to UX and design as being a function of enterprise. And again, I don't have any answers here. It's just a suspicion and it's probably only one thread in in a very thick rope. But I suspect that there may be something in that and that the focus of practitioners in the space has changed as a result of them being part of a much larger bureaucracy and perhaps having controls uh, as a result of that bureaucracy placed around them and conditions that have not lent themselves to that level of innovation that we may have seen in the field and in particular in the early years. But again, I can't say for certain it's just a suspicion. I think it's possible. I think that when you're constantly fighting for a seat at the table, 
it's hard to build new tables and build new seats. So that might be, might be part of it. I think that incentives matter. The way academia is operating right now, which is somewhat disappointing to many of us, is due to the incentive system in academia. And incentives are very powerful in, in tech and, and UX research as well. We go through performance reviews and we are measured on certain things. And that doesn't usually include advancing the UX research community with some new method. You know, that's, that's not the way we are measured. And so people will tend to focus on, on the things they're measured on. And, and that's what, what motivates us. And so I think, I think incentives matter. I think we have to figure out this battle for seats at the table, because when you're just focused on, on that, you're, you're sapped out of any energy to do anything beyond that. And by the way, I would be more than delighted to be proven wrong. I hope that in the comments to this, uh, to, to this conversation or, or elsewhere, may, maybe people will bring up phenomenal examples of methodological innovation that I'm missing. I just want to acknowledge that none of us have full spatial awareness of everything that's going on in the field. So I, I and I know you do as well, I, I invite conversation here, I invite comments, and I would love to, to be proven wrong. And I would love for us to get past certain debates and certain issues such that we can focus more on on these sorts of things if we find that we should, which is, again, yet another debate. But that's my take on why this is happening. I want to turn our attention as we bring the show down to a close now to another talk that I believe you gave at a conference recently, which was inspired by your children by becoming a father and the shift in mindset that the, that experience, you know, of watching your children grow up and learn and be in the world inspired within you and how that affected your practice of UX research. Now, I realize that we don't have time to go through all of the things on this topic that I had hoped for. So I'm just going to narrow down on something um, specific here. And the I believe it's the third lesson that you recounted in that talk, which was tell it like it is. And that's something that, speaking of ChatGPT earlier, that ChatGPT is uh, is very, very good at giving is very direct answers to uh, to the questions that you're putting into it. And you've said about this particular topic as it applies to our practice of UX research within the enterprise. You've said it is crucial to somewhat, if not completely, disregard the inner politics of the organisation. The more we obfuscate how the user experience is and hide those things and try to fit in with the team and company politics, the less we're able to claim we're the voice of our users. Now, I was thinking about this, and I love it. It's, it's really uh, punchy. You know, it sort of got me all stirred up, and I was like, yes, let's just tell it how it is. Let's, you know, like a hot knife through butter, let's just get to the point and give whoever those stakeholders are that need to hear the results of this research exactly what they need, unfettered, just only what they need to hear. And then I thought throughout history, messengers of truth, and particularly of bad news, don't tend to have the happiest or the longest of lives 
And I was curious about your perspective on this and whether or not there was some nuance that I was not getting from what I had been listening to. You know, how, just how direct or how much uh, should we not pay attention to the politics of the organisation and just pre- present that truth? Yeah. First of all, thank you for not shying away from the difficult questions. I'm always happy <laughs> to have debates and be asked these questions, and I, I do appreciate it, especially in the context of this question because of what I said in, in that quote. Um, you know, you're doing what I said, essentially. So I, I, I really do appreciate it. You know, I tend to do something in my storytelling, and, and I mentioned this earlier, which is uh, speak in strong terms, speak in extremes, because I think some of our conversations are unbalanced. And I want to kind of move the pendulum closer to the other side. Now, do I literally believe, for example, that we should completely ignore politics and team dynamics and the health of our relationships with cross-functional partners? No, I I wouldn't say I believe that. What I would say is that uh, I grew up in a country where radical candor is, is just another Tuesday or any other day of the week. Uh, Radical Candor is a phenomenal book by Kim Scott, and I, of course, recommend it to anyone. But culturally, as Israelis, we we say it as it is. Uh, New Yorkers love to boast that they are incredibly direct people. I can promise you my culture is 10 times, 100 times more more direct than, than New Yorkers. And I do think that if we are going to claim to be something like the voice of the user, then then we should take that responsibility very seriously. Uh, If we're going to mention empathy in every second sentence, then we have to stand behind that, take that empathy and deep understanding we hopefully gleaned about the people we serve and communicate that. Now, You're absolutely right that the relationships we have with our cross-functional partners are critical for success in in tech, for success in in our careers. And I think what I've discovered is that it's important to strike a balance. And for example, if you find out something that to the team – would be very difficult to grok. Very controversial, incredibly surprising, shocking even. Maybe it could be very demotivating to the team, almost depressing in a sense, but it's true. It came out of rigorous research and you are confident in that finding. What I would recommend researchers do is they go to, for example, their main partner, be it a design lead or product lead, And they share this research one-on-one. Or maybe even before that step, they go to a fellow researcher, go to your fellow researchers and ask them, hey, I need you to take a look at this particular point. It came out of a rigorous research project and careful synthesis, but it's so controversial that I don't feel like I have the confidence that I've minimized the risk enough or maximized the confidence enough to be able to say, this is the correct conclusion. Can you please review this? 
And once it's been reviewed and once you bring it to your main partner, then you can try and, you know, frame it in a way that will be more palatable to the rest of the team. But by palatable, I don't mean obfuscating it. I don't mean hiding it. You know, part of radical candor is showing kindness to people by sharing the truth. That is the kind thing to do, even when it's hard. And so by making it more palatable, I'm talking about applying those storytelling principles of presenting it accurately, clearly, persuasively, to hopefully shift people's minds and, and to have to have impact. So I'm also you know, hearing it I'm also hearing in there with humility, but not necessarily without confidence. Absolutely. You know, few things are more important for a researcher than humility. I mean, I would suggest also as people, humility is a is a good thing to focus on, regardless of your profession. But humility is in the essence of what it means to be a researcher. Because it's only because we acknowledge what we don't know that we then go and pursue it, right? That's why we do research in the first place. It's the pursuit of the unknown. It's the recognition that there are so many things in this world that we don't understand and that we need to understand better. But once we reach that understanding, it's on us, it's on our shoulders to present that understanding accurately with candor, with radical candor with humility and kindness, but also razor-sharp accuracy, to your point about knives and, and butter. And I think it's marvelous to get feedback on that. I think it's marvelous to do that in a collaborative way and in a sensitive way. But to go back to something we talked about in the beginning of, of this conversation, we are operating in many cases in uncharted waters. We have a huge responsibility on our shoulders as UX practitioners. We don't have time to waste when it comes to these things because time wasted could mean terrible results, terrible societal results. And, and so if we want to maintain our ethics, maintain our values, build incredible and delightful things that, that, that solve real problems for people. We owe it to ourselves and to the people we work with to operate from that mindset, you know? And you mentioned how I learn from, from children and, and where, that, where the inspiration for that talk even begun. One of the things I realized as a parent is that we can learn from children so, so much it's not that we just teach children. It's a two-way street. We can learn so much from our children. And one of the reasons we do is that they, they just say it straight. Sometimes that can be very hurtful. Uh, in fact, this sort of thing happened to my wife just this morning. And sometimes it can be difficult. And of course, sometimes it's coming from an immature place that doesn't have a good understanding of the world. But it's a learning moment. And when you remind yourself of the context and who this is coming from, you're reminded that there are learnings hiding everywhere. And you just have to listen and have that humility. And if you take the time to do that, 
then you will discover incredible things. No, I understand that the last lesson, and it's perhaps more something that your children reminded you of, and you were starting to uncover that there, is to believe in magic. And I understand that there's a quote, a beautiful quote from a children's author, the legendary Roald Dahl, that you've used to sum this up. And I just wondered if you wouldn't mind reading that for me now. Absolutely. Above all, watch with glittering eyes the whole world around you, because the greatest secrets are always hidden in the most unlikely places. Those who don't believe in magic will never find it. And why is it important for us in tech to remember to believe in magic? I define myself as a techno-optimist in the sense that I believe that we can have a magnificent and positive effect on this world if we do our work properly, responsibly, thoughtfully. But alongside that responsibility and, and the way we, we, we operate, we also have to stay in touch with our inner child because we're never going to pursue things that don't yet exist if we don't believe in a little bit of magic, if we're not just a little bit crazy, a little bit naive, if we don't escape all of the bubbles and the boxes that surround us after years of adulting and all the cynicism that we've built up over the years, the disbelief, the disappointment, the depressions and anxieties that we face day to day. In order to build magical experiences, you have to first of all believe in magic. You have to believe that you can be an important part of creating that magic. And if you do, then I, I really believe we can all do amazing things as a community. And, and it's why I'm so honored and feel so privileged to be part of this community every single day. Because I really believe that we can create magical experiences. I do believe in magic. I thank my children every single day for reminding me of that. And I encourage us all to to believe in magic as well, because it can lead to some incredible things that you'd never expect. No, what an incredible way to finish this conversation. Thank you for being so generous with your insights and your stories and for going to some challenging places with me today. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so, so much for having me. This was an, an honor. Thanks for doing what you do for the UX community. I, I really, really appreciate it. And I'm just delighted that after years of a pandemic-ridden world and so many tragedies and in a difficult time in tech, to be honest, that we can have these conversations and connect from very far away. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And to me, this is also just a little bit magical and let's not forget that. Thanks a bunch. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Norm. It's been a great pleasure. And if people want to contact you, want to reach out, want to find out what's going on with UX Quests, and I know that there are so many wonderful ways you've been helping the community, what's the best way for them to do that? Thanks so much for asking. I, I want to make this year and the coming years uh, 
even more special. I want to invest a lot more in the UX community. I have some amazing plans that I'm slowly releasing over the year. So um, I would encourage anyone who's interested to uh, follow me on LinkedIn. It's probably the best place. Or to message me on LinkedIn if you'd like. I'm also on Twitter for the time being. We'll, we'll see how long that lasts. But, but LinkedIn is the best place to find me. And I will be updating about several ventures I'm going to be jumping into on LinkedIn later this year. Wonderful. Thanks, Noam. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Noam and all the wonderful things that he's been up to. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, where we get to real depth on the important issues affecting the fields, then please leave a review on the podcast. Subscribe so it turns up weekly, or actually bi-weekly now because I've changed the frequency, bi-weekly every two weeks. And tell someone else about the show if you feel that they would get value from these conversations. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Brendan Jarvis. There's also a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes so you can get to me there. Or you can head on over to the website uh, for The Space In Between, which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave.